Welcome to Mox Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. Uh, I'm Misha. I'm sitting here with Alex. Hey. Um, and we have a very special um, returning, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say friend of the show uh, today. Um, so uh, we are talking to somebody who was actually our first interview from outside of Mox Planck. Uh, you are episode two. Um, and for a long time, the, the most listened to episode, I think. Um, so we're, we're talking to uh, uh, Dr. Jeff Lickman. He is the Jeremy R. Knowles Professor of Molecular and Cellular Biology uh, and the Santiago Ramon y Cajal Professor of the Arts and Sciences at Harvard University. Thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. Um, so uh, there's a couple of really, I think, big key things that, I, uh, that, are, that are sort of these... Um, uh, these anchors uh, throughout your career, right? You first, uh, I believe, became really well known for Brainbow uh, and your work with that. Um, I remember when I was in grad school, I think Josh Sains uh, came and he gave a talk about the technology. And for me, this was absolutely fascinating because the idea that you could actually start mapping out neurons in the entire brain uh, was very, very cool. And um, it seemed to have a lot of promise, but you needed to uh, take a kind of different step. So what, what was the limitation of, of Brainbow that you saw in the beginning? Uh, I think Brainbow was a really good idea. Uh, and I'm, I, I was impressed by the power of uh, the Golgi stain as a way of delineating the structure and ultimately the connectivity of single neurons uh, and its main Problem, the Golgi stains problem was its sparsity. Um, you could only see a few cells and often not even the target cells of a particular uh, neuron you were labeling with the Golgi stain. So Rainbow seemed like a great idea in the sense that now you could leverage color and have basically a Golgi stain of every cell, but delineate them by virtue of their colors. That's right. So before you needed sparsity because otherwise everything would just look like a big black mess. Uh, and now you can differentiate things by colors because um, the rainbow, the rainbow in the brain, uh, everything is uh, picked at a random, uh, all the neurons are sort of random different colors. And that went through a couple of iterations, right? You had rainbow 2, you had, uh, I believe, Astrobow. Um, uh, labeling varying cells and and so what what were the um, what were the problems that you were trying to overcome? I mean, from a lot of us who saw basically you know these amazing screensaver level images and poster level images where you could have lots of colors of the hippocampus. I think that's one of your famous images. Uh, you know, it seemed to me immediately that okay, we we've got all the wiring, right? Yeah, I think we were defeated by reality, unfortunately, <laughs> and the reality um, is that. The optical microscope has a grain uh, related to the diffraction limit, uh, which is in the range of um, maybe a quarter of a micron in the lateral direction and maybe three quarters of a micron in the depth direction. Uh, so that in the depth direction, you're talking about 750 nanometers of depth. Um, if you look at a piece of brain neuropil with an electron microscope, cutting it very thin, um, you see that in 750 nanometers, you often have multiple processes that are passing by each other in the same volume of 750 nanometers. So with Brainbow, that meant inevitably that for the finest processes, which would have the least fluorescence by virtue of their a very small volume, 
you'd have multiple processes right on top of each other. And there, it was very hard to trace wires with that technique in the central nervous system. In the peripheral nervous system, it's a different story. We're working on a paper now related to a reconstruction of developing muscle uh, with Brainbow, where it's really quite interesting and beautiful, and things are big enough that it's easy to disambiguate the colors. But in the central nervous system, we were just defeated by that. Now, there is some hope for Brainbow. I think people doing expansion microscopy now are doing things like Brainbow. They're just sort of getting color diversity and then spreading things apart with expansion. And that may ultimately be very useful uh, for, the, for the central nervous system. But there was something you know, fundamentally challenging about using color. In addition, you have to use a transgenic approach. And if you wanted to see every wire, uh, you have to have a very impressive transgenic strategy where every neuron is labeled, for example. And electron microscopy just has a profound advantage, and that's why we went to electron microscopy in the sense that you're labeling with something very nonspecific, in particular osmium, a metal label that labels every membrane and every intracellular organelle that's membrane-enclosed. Um, and you're getting all of your ability to resolve based on the fact that the resolution limit of electrons is, you know, thousand times better maybe so you realize that light waves are too small um you needed to switch to the electron microscope uh, I, uh the problem for you i believe at the time was that electron microscopes are incredibly slow and take really small amounts of tissue so uh your lab invented something called the automatic tape collecting um uh lath ultramicrotome is that right the the atlum yeah we started with the atlum this was uh a brainchild of Ken Hayworth, uh, who's now at Janelia Farm, uh, still making really amazing machines. But uh, I was looking for a way to automate serial electron microscopy. Uh, and he and I talked, uh, and he had not yet built anything that would do the job, but he came as a postdoc uh, to Harvard and then built first an automatic lathe, and then ultimately just a tape-collecting microtome that would fit on a regular microtome, which we call ATUM, with no L in it, A-T-U-M. <clears throat> and we still use those devices every day. They're quite remarkable. We can generate uh, 10,000 sections in a day, and uh, they're on tape, uh, so they're a permanent uh, set of sections, and they're cut at 30 nanometers, which is thinner than traditionally people cut with ultramicrotomes, but because it's an automatic process, there's no hysteresis, there's no cooling down, so once it gets into a rhythm, it can cut uh, sequentially section after section after section, collect them on tape, then cut the tape into strips, put the strips on silicon wafers, map the position of every section on the wafer, and then put them in a microscope that automatically goes from section to section, focuses and takes those images, and then our once the time of cutting was solved, then we began worrying about the time of image acquisition. And uh, I had a bunch of discussions with a microscope company, Carl Zeiss, um, and their engineers had been thinking about building, actually they built a prototype for wafer inspection of a super fast electron microscope, uh, which had multiple scanning beams in it. And so rather than taking the time of a single beam to image a section, 
the microscope they built finally that we took possession of had 61 beams. So it was almost like having 61 electron microscopes <clears throat> at the same time. So that sped that up tremendously. They now have a 91 beam version of this. Uh, we can generate about 20 terabytes a day, I think, of image data. And I think with the 91 beams, you get another 30% on top of that. So it becomes possible now to contemplate really crazy things that even several years ago uh, were hard for me to imagine, like doing a whole animal. Uh, yeah, and, that, and so that's pretty amazing, right? Because the um, electron microscopy images that a lot of us uh, learned about electron microscopes from are essentially these cool, really zoomed images of, you know, bugs or, you know, fly wings, something like that. Um, these, uh, these TEM images. But these breakthroughs that you're talking about, uh, that you were part of creating, allowed us to go in three dimensions and actually be able to slice and collect data at a rate, um, you know, hundreds, uh, let's say a hundred times faster, uh, just imaging, right? And then when we talk about tape data collection, tape collection onto a wafer, right? Um, even much more than that. And so for the first time, we were able to quickly enough build these three-dimensional slice-by-slice uh, samples of the brain. Yeah, uh, something we call digital tissue. Uh, to make the case that you have a tissue here that has a lot of information in it that has nothing to do with even the questions you were trying to pose, maybe to do the experiment in the first place, but you now have a in silico version of a piece of tissue where every organelle down to every synaptic vesicle, every mitochondrion, the rough endoplasmic reticulum, everything, every glial cell, everything is available for purview uh, in a digital space. So I have a question. When you were talking about the rainbow, you said that the density of the cells and, and how close everything was was a surprise or uh, maybe unexpected in the process of that. I'm curious, was there anything unexpected in in this, uh, in this, that's, yeah, in this new, in what you're working on now um, in the last couple of years? Uh, yeah, uh, actually everything. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us about that? I, mean, I think one interesting thing about... Um, using modalities that have not been used before is that it reveals a reality that is in some ways incompatible with your preconceived notions. And in the case of three-dimensional data where everything is visible, almost everything is different from what you know based on pictures uh, that come from textbooks that are based on older technologies. I'll give you one very simple, it's not an amazing example, but it is... It, it, it's really interesting to me that we have tools now that not only take these images and align the data, <clears throat> but thanks to work with sophisticated groups, including Varen Jane's group at Google, we have the ability to have every single neuron and every glial cell segmented. So we have a three-dimensional version of every single cell in there, including every synapse is itemized and annotated. When you look at the three-dimensional view of neurons, that come out of electron microscopy, they look funny in one particular way. The axons look way too thin. You see the dendrites, the dendritic spines, cell body, everything's nice, but the axon is very, the side branches are super thin. And I realize the reason for this is that all the images of axons are based on light diffracted limited images where the, the axon cannot be smaller than 300, 400 
nanometers in width, but many of these axons are much smaller than that. And in the electron microscope, you suddenly see these cells in a very different way. The axons are completely different from the dendrites in that respect. And there's a, I can give you a million examples of things that just don't look right. And it's not because there's something wrong with the electron microscope. It's just that we have a very distorted view. Astrocytes is another good example. You think of astrocytes as these cells with these long arms going in all different directions like a star. But when you do the serial reconstruction of an astrocyte, it's this dense, super massive lamellar object that you know cuts out all light. It's like a sponge or something. It's just it has a completely different feel from an electron microscopic reconstruction than light microscopic views of the same cells where the small processes are invisible. That's pretty cool. What about on like the data end of things? You're collecting you so you said tens of terabytes of data. Was it a day or what was it? Yeah, uh, yeah, per day we yeah. can collect up to 20 terabytes. Our, the data set we're working on now that's the largest is 2,000 terabytes. So it's two petabytes of data, and uh, it's a piece of human cerebral cortex from a, a person who, uh, who I think is still alive. It was just taken during surgery. Um, and yeah, dealing with data of this size uh, leads you to a very um, depressing realization is despite the effort of and, and success maybe in getting all the data, getting every single thing aligned and then stitched and then annotated uh, every synapse, every cell three-dimensionally reconstructed, there isn't enough time in a human life to look at all that data. <laughs> well, so that sort of brings me, so I was mentioning before, like there are a couple of anchors that I see in, in your most recent uh, parts of your career, right? You have Brainbow, and then you created uh, this uh, ultra microtome that was able to uh, take data down faster. You were able to image everything faster in the EM. And so now you started getting these insanely large sets of data that nobody's ever dealt with before, nobody's ever seen before, we don't have analysis software for. And uh, there's, a, there's a talk that you give on, uh, that's on YouTube that I've shown to my students quite a lot. Um, because at this point, I believe you, you uh, in your lab have had manually reconstructed a small little cylinder around a single axon. And what you saw that there's a lot of other, uh, you know, uh, potentially dendrites there, there's uh, pieces of uh, other axons there. Um, some glia and just random stuff that you had no idea what that was, right? And that's the point to me that I saw, okay, this is actually going to be really, really difficult, not just to reconstruct this, but to take any real meaning out of this. I mean, what does this mean? What are those things there for? Are they active? Are they inactive? And the over the next couple of years, or the last couple of years, um, from what I understand, you're, uh, a lot of progress has been made uh, using things like convolutional neural networks, deep learning, and so these semi-automatic and automatic ways of actually reconstructing all of this tissue. Um, so I, like, I'd love to talk a little bit about that, about the, the sort of breakthroughs that have happened uh, within the last few years of analyzing these insanely large data sets. Yeah, so on one side, things have gone way better than I would have possibly imagined. Everything I could have imagined I'd want at some point before I died to see, we're already seeing. For example, I can click on a neuron in a three-dimensional data set and then <clears throat> click on a button to show me the site of every synapse onto that cell and also show me the site of every synapse that cell's axon makes. 
I can click on another button to render every one of the inputs and outputs of that cell. And I can do that for every one of 25,000 neurons. Now. And is this, uh, <laughs> so I, I assume you're talking about Neuroglancer? Using Neuroglancer, yeah. but it's, Neuroglancer is just the rendering tool. It's yeah. the Python code that so, allows So is this in the, in the fly brain that uh, there's a, a full reconstruction where you could do something like this? There's a hemi brain of the fly, but I'm mm -hmm. talking about a piece of human cerebral oh, cortex. Yeah, well, <laughs> from layer one to layer six, everything. And that, it's going so fast, you know, we, none of this is published yet. Just things are moving much faster than one could imagine. So in one sense, things are going swimmingly more than swimmingly. But in another sense, we're running into a real crisis here, at least in my view it's a crisis, and that is the complexity of that little area you were talking about before, which was five million times smaller than what we're dealing with now, and that took five years for us to reconstruct by hand. Um, those problems didn't disappear because we had a bigger sample. They compounded themselves with more and more diversity and complexity. And I think it's one thing to uh, generate a data set like this. It's a completely other thing to say one understands it or can explain it. And I'm retreating from that beachhead back to what I know we can do, which is describe it. And I come from an era where if someone told you your paper was descriptive, that was a polite way of saying your paper is going to be rejected from this journal because it's merely descriptive. But I think that may be the best we can do. And I, and I don't think it's a defeat because ultimately what an explanation of a biological phenomenon is is a description of how it works. And so... What you're generating here is a description of what is there, which, if it has enough detail in it, is in fact how it works. It's just very hard to extract that in a word or a sentence or the abstract of a paper because, in fact, it's not amenable to that kind of analysis. Uh, and I use as an analogy for this New York City that if I asked you, could you explain New York City to me, you would say that's a ill-posed question. There are so many things going on simultaneously. There's so much complexity. At what level do you want me to explain it to you? What do you mean, explain New York City? I say, well, I want to understand New York City. And you say, well, you can't really understand something that complicated. And then I would say, well, if you can't understand New York City, you certainly can't understand the brain, because the brain is way more complicated than New York City. There's way more going on. There's way more diversity of living things interacting in a brain, uh, and I'm talking about the cellular diversity, than the humans that interact in a city. So we're, we have to deal with this, and maybe retreating back to full descriptions as a form of understanding is not a bad idea. For example, you could say if you had a good enough description in silico, you could put in an input to the system, and the output you would get mimics the output you would actually get in a real system. So that is a form of understanding, even though it's a black box and you don't actually know how that output came about because so many interacting elements are taking place. So in a sense, you can 
you can build the Google uh, the Google Maps right of the brain, and then people can have their sort of uh, their in silico experiments and say, well, you know, if I want to start out over here, how do I get to this other place? And maybe that'll be kind of some kind of result. Um, and that's a a lofty and um, uh, I'd say incredibly important uh, goal. Um, you know, essentially like the, you know, it could be the Allen Brain Atlas, but with uh, ultimate resolution, right? Uh, if we actually had all the synapses. Once we have some piece of data like that, uh, you know, experiments are published slowly. Things go slowly because uh, it takes a really long time to actually do studies in animals um, or, you know, in whatever tissue. If we have an actual a really, really, really good copy of a brain in silico. Do you see this sort of uh, changing, um, increasing the speed of, or completely revolutionizing maybe uh, the way that experiments can be done? I mean, if you imagine, you don't have to just publish a study about which neuron interacts with another neuron using CAM kinase two, right? You could do that in a billion places at once. Yeah, I mean, it goes without saying to me that if you could have a whole brain like that, you could follow information flow from retina to everywhere it goes. Um, it wouldn't be easy to do because there's so many forks and there's so much inhibition and other things going on, but you would have basically what really is there. And I remember four years ago when I talked to you, I just yesterday looked, listened to what I said, and I said, well, maybe we don't have to do a whole brain. And I, I realized that back then I was saying that because I couldn't imagine <laughs> You could actually do a whole brain. But now uh, a group of us are very interested in doing a whole mouse brain. Not a hemi brain of a fly, but a whole mouse brain, which would be around a thousand petabytes or an exabyte, which is... Um, is that kind of data storage realistic at this time point, or are we gonna, are you going to need to figure out some, some new way of basically compressing this data? I think compression is an important piece of the puzzle, uh, but data storage is um, at least in the hundreds of petabytes available. Um, uh, doing a whole human brain, which is a zettabyte, is not doable right now. Um, that's, you know, roughly the internet traffic of a year uh, everywhere. <laughs> so, but, but I think a whole mouse brain could be done, and compression is certainly... Once compression get, is possible, especially because compression can be intelligent, it can be designed specifically not to lose the things you care about in a data set like this. Um, the cytoplasm of the nucleus um, maybe can undergo less detail than the synapses where you would care more. And even more so, I mean, if you, uh, if you collect and uh, you know, do segmentation, automatic segmentation at the same time, you could imagine that you can sort of store the reconstruction and not the initial images, which is a real bummer, right? You lose your data. Uh, however, if it's not realistic because you have to actually store a year's worth of internet data's worth of data, then maybe the reconstruction is good enough. Yeah, I mean, we are hoping that we definitely will not have to throw out the original data because there are hidden things in there that we are not paying much attention to now or we don't fully understand now that might come back and be very useful. Uh, so, But one doesn't have to save it at a resolution of 4 nanometers, which is what we take our lateral resolution. Uh, one can probably 
lose a lot of that and still not have any trouble recognizing most of the objects in there. So there is a lot of discussion about doing a project of this scale, which can't be done by any individual. It has to be done probably by a national laboratory and a number of labs, and it will require a number of different kinds of expertise. Um, and we know that many parts of the government, including the National Institutes of Health, are interested in doing such a project. It's just getting together the hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> that it would require. But I think, um, I think it would be useful in so many ways that we don't understand. Again, you know, thinking back to human genomes, the G Human Genome Project was done with very particular ideas in mind. But one of them was not that someday we would be able to trace our ancestral lineage uh, by using genomics to see when humans and uh, Neanderthals separated and where the birth of humans were from, what part of the world. I mean, these are things you would never have imagined genomics would have been useful for. It had nothing to do with what the genes are. It just has to do with studying the macrostructure of of genetic information. And I have a feeling connectomics would be the same way. Also, it's very expensive. I just want to put a plug in for doing this. It's very expensive to do the first animal, but most of the expense is building the machines. Once the machines are there, second animals and additional animals, babies, old animals, animals with disease, other parts of human brains, primate brains, all that could be done very, very cheaply. We just need to get started, I think. So uh, I remember, you know, when, when all of this was sort of starting up, um, there was some pushback against connectomics. Uh, connectomics wasn't covered by the Brain Initiative uh, because the Brain Initiative, uh, initiative needed um, some kind of functional connectivity, uh, some kind of functional information. Um, do you still find that or do you find that, you know, you've made enough stride that you can show your results and say, look at how amazing this is. And obviously connectomics is cool. Well... I, I think we've made, those of us who are interested in this have made some strides, but it would be uh, inaccurate to say that most of my colleagues, especially my older colleagues, are convinced there's any value whatsoever in doing this kind of work. I think there is an underlying assumption among many people that I've heard said uh, that Everyone knows that the wiring diagram of the brain is basically random, so there's nothing really to learn at that level of resolution. And I don't know who those everyones are, but there's nothing in my personal experience to suggest that. Uh, and I think it, it makes it's easier to model a brain where you assume the connections are random. But there's, as I said, in my own personal experience, there's plenty of counterexamples to that in, in the data we're looking at even in the human brain. Uh, so I think, but it, once that idea has stuck in someone's head, maybe based on what they've read or what they want to believe, uh, their own wiring diagram has pruned away the alternative ways of thinking about the world. So they can't change their mind any more than I can change my mind and say that there's nothing to learn from doing connectomics. I think it is a problem of connectomics, basically. I think our points of view about the world are set uh, by our experiences, and if your experiences don't include 
thinking about the brain from the perspective of all these little wires connected to things, you're, you just don't see it that way. I know a lot of physiologists tell me it's really all about action potentials. It's not about connectivity. And I say, but what makes the action potentials turn on? Isn't that wires? That's, that's second order. It's really just the firing properties of individual cells. It, to me, that doesn't make any sense at all. But I've heard some very, very impressive scientists, uh, including Nobel laureates, explain that to me, that it's more about action potentials than it is about connections. As somebody who studied axon guidance in grad school, I find that extremely ridiculous. <laughs> uh, I agree with you. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Uh, we want to give you enough time to have at least a snack. Thank you. Uh, but uh, it was a real great, uh, great pleasure. Thank you for talking to us again. Thanks. My pleasure. <laughs>